want to invite you to pray with me. Let's pray together and call on the Lord. Father, we come to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus today. King Jesus, and we do, we hail you. We bow down and worship you, Lord. You are worthy. You have all power. God, help us exalt your name today. Lord, we pray that you would grant us just, just an awareness of your holy presence among us, Lord. God, help us to worship you today. Help us to celebrate. God, help us to feel the effect of the resurrection in our souls, Lord. God, we pray as we peer into your word of this mighty work that you've done for us in Jesus. God, we pray that worship would rise in our hearts and that you would receive praise from deep in our spirits, Lord, that these things would grip us and move us, Lord. And we ask for your Holy Spirit. We will be cold without your Holy Spirit to these things, but with your Spirit, Lord, we'll feel the weight of them. We'll feel the weight of them, Lord. For the weight of what you've done, the beauty of what you've done, the glory and the majesty of what you've done, Lord. And so we do, Lord, we say hail to you, King Jesus. We ask for your help. Help us to see you. Help us to worship you, Lord. God, I pray that you would help me to teach your word. God, all of our trust is in you and in this living, powerful word that you've given us, Lord. And we gather in your name and our eyes are fixed on you, Lord. And we want to meet with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we celebrate the living Christ. This is why we are here. This is why we're gathered today. And what this means is that the Jesus that we serve, the Jesus that we love, is alive and he reigns forever. This is what this means. We don't serve a myth and we don't follow a myth. Our Jesus is alive and he reigns forever. The scripture says this, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death has no claim on our Savior, no claim on our King Jesus. And the word of God says it was actually impossible that he would not triumph over death and triumph over the grave. He's the creator coming to his creation. It's impossible for him not. So he comes out of the tomb. And he's raised victorious forever. He's the king. And this is what we celebrate today. Does this stir your soul? Okay, Deep down in you, does this grip your heart? This is a powerful demonstration of our great God. I hope it does grip your soul. Some will deny the resurrection... Others will minimize the resurrection. Okay? But the resurrection has been referred to as the last half and the most important event in redemptive history. Okay? It is the capstone of Christianity, and some have even called it the Gibraltar of Christian evidences. The capstone, the seal that changes everything. It is the foundation of the gospel. Think about this no resurrection means no gospel, no gospel means no salvation. From sin, the resurrection is the foundation of the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus Christ saturates the New Testament. Saturates it. Perhaps nowhere clearer than 1 Corinthians 15. So with that in mind, I would invite you to turn with me today in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. And if you don't have a Bible, I have 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 8 on that handout. And this is the passage of Scripture that we're about to dive in and unpack by God's grace. We have the great privilege today of celebrating the greatest event in history. Okay? The matters of first importance. This is what we get to enter into in the next moments. Praise God. We get to celebrate the most important thing in history. So prepare to be addressed by God Himself. As we read verses 3 through 8 together, hear the word of the living God. It says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day 
in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as one untimely born, He appeared also to me. So verse 3 reminds us, and we just read it, that we're about to walk into discussing the, most, the matters of first importance, the most important thing that has ever happened, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? There have been many great world events in human history. Nothing rivals this. This is the matter of first importance. So verse 3 again says this. We're going to walk through this passage together. So I invite you just to follow real close along to what the Word of God teaches here. Verse 3 again says this, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So we start with this, the Word of God affirms that Christ died. This is what the Word of God affirms to us, that Jesus of Nazareth, who is called the Christ, died on a Roman cross around 33 A.D. This is an indisputable historical fact. Okay, listen to this quote. This is off a pagan Wikipedia article, okay, about the historical Jesus. Listen to this, quote, Despite diverse scholarly opinions of the historical Jesus, almost all modern scholars consider His baptism and His crucifixion to be historical facts, close quote. Okay? Facts. Certain matters nailed down. This is the death of Jesus. It is rooted in history. He really died. He was crucified. Some deny blatant historical facts. Let me give you an example of that. There are sects of Islam, you may have heard this, there are splinter sects of Islam that deny that the Holocaust ever even occurred. You ever heard of that? And they say, despite all this evidence, despite all this history, we just say it never even happened. Okay? And they take historical facts and slide it off to the side. This is ignorance to the highest degree. Okay? To blatantly disregard historical facts is ignorant. In the same way, it is intellectual suicide not to affirm that there was a first century Galilean Jew named Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified on a Roman cross around 33 AD. This is a historical fact. Okay? This is a historical fact. Feel the weight of that. Now, why in the world would this Galilean Jew named Jesus, why in the world would he have been crucified? Why in the world would he have been killed? And the gospel records don't leave us to wonder. They tell us exactly why Jesus was crucified. Listen to this. Jesus was killed because He claimed to be God in the flesh. He said that. He claimed to be Israel's true king. And He claimed to be humanity's judge. So you have this guy named Jesus. And He walks around and He says, I'm I'm God in the flesh. I'm the real king, and I'm going to judge everybody that's listening to me. I will be your final judge. And there are a lot of people that heard him, his enemies, and they didn't like what he was saying. And therefore, the Gospels tell us that, that his enemies stirred up crowds, and they had Jesus Christ crucified. This is why he was killed. Christ died. Okay, here we must affirm. Okay, before we get into silliness, we must affirm that Jesus really died. His spirit left his body and his body became a corpse. He really died. Christ died. This means he's, there was no seeing, no hearing, no feeling, no anything. No heartbeat, no breathing, no brain waves. He was dead. He's, his body became a cold corpse. Christ died. He really died. Even non-Christian historical sources verify this. And Paul goes into the beginning of verse 4 and he says this. So we have Christ died and then he said, and he was buried. Okay? So it's like Paul was saying, he died. No, he really died. They put him in the tomb. He was buried. Okay? So drive that in your head. He died. No, he really died. He was buried. But the scriptures actually say more than this. Verse 3 that says that Christ died for our sins. 
He died for our sins. This tells us that as Jesus was murdered, God was actually doing something behind the scenes in this crucifixion. This means that the crucifixion, God was working our salvation. Christ died for our sins. How does this work? The Scriptures teach that Jesus becomes our substitute on the cross. He died for our sins. The sacrificial Lamb of God died for our sins. Our sins were placed on Christ on the cross. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our iniquity, our sins were laid on the body of Jesus on the cross. This is what the scripture teaches. He died for our sins. So our sins were laid on the body of Jesus by the Father. And then what happens? What happens? As our sins are placed upon the body of Christ, Romans 8 Verse 3 says that God condemned sin in the flesh. You see that? Our sins were laid on the body of Jesus and God the Father condemned sin in the flesh. This means that the wrath of Almighty God, the condemnation, the punishment, was poured out on the body of Jesus and Jesus' body was broken. He endured the wrath of God. Christ died for our sins. The wrath the condemnation and the punishment for sin was supposed to fall on us. But God in His infinite mercy allowed it to fall on our substitute, the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. Further still in verse 3, Christ died for our sins and this was in accordance with the Scriptures. You see that? The Old Testament had prophesied that there would be one who would die for the sins of his people. This is nowhere clearer than Isaiah 53. Many of you know this. Isaiah 53. Listen to verses 10 and 11. This is the prophecy. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous, the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. From ancient of days, there was this one prophesied who would bear the sins of his people. Give, give his life for the sins of others. And make many to be accounted righteous. This is the word of God. And this is what Paul's saying in verse 3. He died in accordance with the Scriptures. The verse that we just read in Isaiah 53, this was written 600 years before Jesus ever even was born into the world. 600 years this was written. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. So this event, Jesus dies in accordance with the Scriptures. This event has been foretold. Been foretold for at least 600 years when Christ dies. And then we come to verse 4. And this is what we celebrate today. Verse 4 says this. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Okay? I, wanna, I, I just want you to think about this. Because this is where we part ways forever with the weak, nominal Jesus of our culture. And we follow the supernatural Christ of the Word of God. We affirm and we follow a risen, resurrected Lord. So he died on the cross, but that's not where we stop. He was raised on the third day. This means that our Savior lives, He is alive, and He is Lord. The Bible bears witness to the truth that three days after Jesus dies, three days after Jesus dies, and we mean He really died. No breath, no heartbeat, really dead. The Bible teaches that three days after He dies, the Holy Spirit enters into the tomb of Jesus where His body lays. And in an act of supreme, sovereign authority, God Himself raises the body of Jesus. He brings life out of death. He was raised on the third day. His heart began to beat again. His lungs started to breathe. And His eyes opened. And He is alive. 
Three days he was dead, but he's dead no longer. He is alive. Praise God for this. Praise God that he's raised Christ. Think about this. When we say that Jesus is alive, we don't mean this, that he lives on forever as the spirit of Christ. Okay? That he lives forever as the spirit. We do not mean that. True Christianity affirms that Jesus rose bodily. This is very important. It's a first century heresy. Okay? True Christianity affirms that Jesus Christ rose bodily. The same body that was born to Mary and bore our sins in the cross was raised from the tomb. He was raised flesh and blood. His body was raised from the dead. When we say that Jesus rose bodily, we don't mean that he was raised in the same way that Lazarus was raised. Y'all know that story, right? That there was a man that, was, that had died for several days. His name was Lazarus and Jesus raised him from the dead. What's different in Lazarus' resurrection and Jesus' resurrection? What's different? The difference is that, is that several years later, we don't know exactly when, but Lazarus died again. Okay? He was raised and he died again. Not Jesus. Listen to Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. This is the difference between the resuscitation of Lazarus and the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1, verse 18 says this. Jesus says, I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus was raised never to die again. So think about this. Glorified, perfect humanity. As he was raised on the third day, glorified, perfect humanity came out of the tomb. Never to die again. This is the glorious resurrection of Jesus. And this is what we celebrate today. In verse 4, this resurrection was also in accordance with the scriptures. This means that the resurrection of Jesus was prophesied from ancient days. Listen to Acts 2, verse 24. I read this one to you earlier. but This is Acts 2, 24. It says, talks about the resurrection of Jesus and it says this. God raised him up. Loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Then, three verses later, after we have a verse on the resurrection, Luke, the author of Acts, roots the resurrection of Jesus in an Old Testament prophecy. This is Psalm 16.10. This is what he does. So Psalm 16.10, he says the resurrection of Jesus, and then he says, but this is really what was said in Psalm 16.10, which says this, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your holy one see corruption. This verse was about Jesus. Psalm 1610 was about Jesus. That God wouldn't let his holy one see corruption or abandon his soul to Sheol or Hades. This verse is about Jesus. Now, why is that important? Because Psalm 16 was written by King David 1,000 years, 1,000 years before Christ was ever born. So the word of God is the faithful witness through the ages, and it prophesies prophesize events before they even happen, okay? And don't do anything silly right now in your brain, like saying, oh yeah, well somebody just wrote that in after he was raised from the dead. That is complete silliness. There are copies of the Old Testament Scriptures that predate Christ by four, five hundred years, okay? Don't even go there. These events were foretold. They were prophesied, and our God knows the future before it happens. He ordains it. He controls all things. So the resurrection of Jesus was in accordance with the Scriptures. From ancient of days, God, by His Spirit, prophesied these things. A thousand years before Christ ever came. Therefore, what does this mean? It means this. The resurrection of Jesus proves that the Word of God is true. This book that you're holding in your hands, the resurrection of Jesus is like a stamp and a seal that says, this is the Word of God. This is not a book. This is not a fairy tale. This is living, breathing words of the Almighty King. The resurrection proves it. 1,000 years before it happened, God foretells it, and then what happens? And then it happens. God foretells it, and then it happens. This proves that His Word is true. This is a supernatural book. This book reveals the Creator God to us. It reveals His plans. It reveals His ways. It reveals His standards to us. This book is true in everything it affirms. 
You say, well, I don't know if I believe that. Well, it just told you a thousand years before something happened and then it happened. It affirmed itself. The resurrection of Jesus is like a seal. This book is trustworthy. It reveals to us that the only way to be made right with God forever is through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the message of this book. So here's a minor point about the resurrection of Jesus. Trust and treasure your Bible because the resurrection of Jesus proves to you that it's the Word of God. The resurrection also proves that Jesus is who He said He was. It it proves that. So we already talked about this a little bit. Why did they kill Him? Why did they crucify Christ? It's because of his, His claims about Himself. And some people didn't like his claims, so they crucified him. Well, here's what the resurrection does. It validates his claims about himself. Okay? Listen to Romans chapter 1, verse 4. It says this about Jesus. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He was declared to be the Son of God in power by the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. What does that mean? It means that God sealed it. He declared that the things that Jesus had claimed about Himself were true. They verified it. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus claims to be God with these words. He looks at a group of people and He says, Before Abraham was, I am. He takes the the covenant name of God and and He says... This is me. This is who I am. What do you think they tried to do in the very next verse? They tried to kill him. Okay? And then a couple of chapters later, in John chapter 10, you have his enemies and they say this. This is John 10, 33. They, they look at Jesus and they say, We are going to stone you. Why? Because you, being a man, make yourself God. We're going to kill you because you're claiming to be God. Jesus even prophesies His own resurrection. Listen to John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus says this, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He prophesied His own resurrection. What do you do with a guy like this? He says, I'm God, and if you kill me, I'm just going to raise myself from the dead. What do you do with somebody like that? Okay? And it's one thing to claim these things about yourself. That's one thing. But we're on a whole nother level when three days after you die, the exact same, that, same thing that you said you would do, you do it. And it happens. What does this mean? It means that your resurrection validates your claims. And you are declared to be the Son of God in power. This is what the resurrection does to Jesus. It declares Him to be the Son of God in power. He is who He said He was. Okay, back to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, so we're through through verses 3 and 4. Christ died and He was raised. Christ died and He was raised. And then Paul launches into, he starts unpacking a series of post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. So we're going to read that together. I want you to think about this. Because he proclaims that Jesus has been risen from the dead, and then he proves it with evidence. That's what he's doing now. This is what we're going to unpack together. Verse 5 through 8 say this. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So the same thing when when Paul says Christ died and then he says he was buried, he does the same thing here. He says Christ was raised and then he says he appeared. And it's like he he was saying this, no, he was really raised. People saw him. He showed himself to people. He was really raised. This is what's happening here. The list of appearances that we're about to walk through, this is not an exhaustive list of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Okay, this is not his intention to give you an exhaustive list of everybody that saw him. Because we know from the Gospels that there are people that saw him that Paul does not mention in this passage. But this passage presents us with credible eyewitnesses. This is what Paul is doing. He's showing us evidence. 
credible eyewitnesses that saw Jesus walk on the earth after he died on the cross. I want you to think about why Paul gives eyewitness testimony. Think about this. Maybe you have thought about this a lot. Maybe you've never thought about it, but I want you to think about it for just a moment. Why does Paul start going into eyewitness testimony in these verses? I want to remind you of the authority of eyewitnesses. Every human court on this planet accepts eyewitness testimony to establish a matter beyond reasonable doubt. Think about this. There's enough lawyer shows flying around TV to know this, right? Example. Here's an example. If someone were to commit murder and stand trial, okay, and they're standing trial in the courtroom, and you have one eyewitness after another, and they walk in, and these eyewitnesses, they don't say, yeah, I heard that he did that. They open their mouth and they say, I saw him kill that person. I saw it with my eyes. He is a murderer. And one comes in, and two says the same thing, and three says the same thing, and four. What's about to happen to that person? What's about to happen to them? Think about it. What's about to go down? Something's about to be established based off the testimony of eyewitnesses. Now, what happens to them? Don't jump ahead yet. Okay, Something's got to happen first. Because first, you have to hear the counter evidence, right? Where someone's defense attorneys, they start trying to lay down an alibi to, to, to get this person far away from the scene of the crime. Right? Y'all seen that? Now, let's say that no alibi was established. No alibi was established and four, five eyewitnesses say, I saw him do it. I saw him kill that person. He's a murderer. What's going to happen? That person is about to be pronounced guilty. A sentence is about to be passed down on that person and justice is about to be executed. This is the authority of eyewitnesses. Every single court on this planet works like that. Every single one. Okay? Eyewitnesses are authoritative. And this is why Paul starts unpacking these appearances. So, eyewitnesses are authoritative. Every single court on this earth verifies to that fact. Now, let me ask you this. How much more authoritative when not three or four, but over 500 people say the same exact thing about Christ, that I saw Him walk on the earth after He died on the cross. I saw Him with my eyes. Think about this. How much more authority? How much more authority when the vast majority of those 500 people are still alive? And this is what Paul says in verse 6. We read, most of whom are still alive. And so what he says to this group of people that he writes to is, I am not making this up. Most of them are still alive. Go ask them. They saw it with their eyes. How much more authority? How much more authority when the resurrection that they bear witness to had been prophesied for over a thousand years and God by His Holy Spirit had been bearing witness to these things for centuries and centuries and centuries and then over 500 people rise up and say the exact same thing that the Scriptures say. They saw him walk the earth after he died on the cross. These are the eyewitnesses. How much more authority when the witnesses testify at great personal sacrifice, risking their own lives and the lives of their family to bear witness to the truth that Christ had been raised. The truth is that this cost many their life. This cost many their life. History records that almost every apostle of Jesus died a martyr's death. Think about this. Here are just a few examples. James the elder was martyred first. He was slain by sword from the decree of Herod Agrippa. You can read about this in Acts chapter 12. All right, so he's one of the witnesses. Yet he's martyred. It cost him his life. Tradition tells us that Bartholomew was martyred in India, filleted alive with knives. Tradition holds that Thomas was martyred in India also. He was speared and then thrown into a fire. Tradition holds that Andrew was martyred in Greece. He was crucified on an X-shaped cross. He felt unworthy to die on the same type cross as his Lord. 
History also affirms that Peter was martyred in Rome and at his own request, he was crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to die the same type death as this Lord Jesus. Here's my point. Who would endure this gruesome martyrdom for what they knew to be a lie? Who would do that? What about the counter evidence? There's one piece of evidence that would have silenced every single eyewitness and buried Christianity forever. One piece of evidence. The dead body of Jesus would have refuted every single one of them. But why was it never presented? The dead body of Christ. The Jews and the Romans both had a great need to silence the Christian church. So why didn't they produce the dead body of Christ and publicly announce all the apostles as liars and imposters? Why did this not happen? It's not like that they didn't know where the body of Jesus was. Think about this. In Luke 24, we see that Jesus dies a famous death in Jerusalem. And it's assumed in Luke 24 that every person in Jerusalem knew what it, that he had been crucified. The gospel records show us that the Romans, the Jews, and the disciples all knew where his tomb was. They knew where the body of Christ was. Jesus had prophesied his own resurrection, and his enemies knew it. Listen to Matthew 27. This is verses 63 and 64. Jesus prophesied his own resurrection, and you have these words. We remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. And so they, verse 66 says, so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So they knew what he said. They took measures to guard the body, and then the gospel records that after three days, the body of Jesus is not in the tomb. The one piece of evidence that could refute the, the apostles' testimony, this eyewitness testimony, bury Christianity forever, it's not there. The body's not in the tomb, even though they took measures to guard against this happening. The only explanation that his enemies offer is found in Matthew 28, 13. They say this, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. It's the only thing that they can come up with. And this is what they say. The only explanation that his enemies come up with, and there are at least three major problems with this argument. Here's the first one. This explanation, and this is just hilarious how this works out. This explanation of what had happened concedes the fact that the body of Jesus is no longer in the tomb. Okay? They, in their explanation, confess that the body of Jesus is no longer in the tomb, even though it was sealed with a stone and guarded by Roman soldiers. Second, if the disciples came and stole the body away while they were asleep, how did they know the disciples stole the body away if they were asleep? Do you understand that? The, the stone was sealed. Okay? Now, this is just a little side note. If you're a Roman soldier and your job is to guard the tomb of Jesus... At the cost of your life, this is your job, okay? And this tomb, the stone that covered the entrance to this tomb was sealed, okay? And this means that some kind of mixture of clay and mortar was put around the crack of this tomb so nobody could get in. And this would have meant that it would have taken a brick mason couple to a several hours with a hammer and a chisel to break the seal of this tomb, okay? And here we have a group of Roman soldiers asleep right outside this tomb, and several hours of hammering with a chisel and a hammer. Don't wake them up. Okay? This, argue, this, this excuse and this argument is filled with holes. Filled with holes. Third, let's pretend that a few of the apostles managed to sneak into the sealed tomb, guarded by Roman soldiers, and steal away the body of Jesus without anybody knowing. Crazy, right? I know. Let's just pretend that it did happen. How did they manage to trick over 500 eyewitnesses to see the exact same thing? How did that happen? How did they manage to trick everybody? And finally, if it was a hoax, if it was a hoax, and we're pretending that it was, 
Why would they have suffered an agonizing death for a silly game? Think about this. Do you understand this point? Do you really think that as spikes were being driven into the body of Peter, crucified upside down on the cross, do you really think as the spikes were being driven into his body that he would have endured this excruciating death for a lie? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that as Bartholomew was being filleted alive with knives, that if it was a trick, he would have stopped them before it's too late? He said, hold up, hold up, hold up. This thing was a hoax. I recant. It was a hoax. Hold up. Don't go any further. Why did that not happen? Why did they endure it to the end? Every single one of them that died was cut down in battle. Okay. Why did this happen? It's because they saw the risen Lord walk the earth. And this marked them to the point that where they wanted to follow this risen king more than they wanted anything else in this world. And therefore they gladly endured suffering, even the suffering and death to follow their King Jesus. Okay. They really saw Christ. There was no hoax. There was no stealing of the body, even though this is the only excuse that his enemies offer. So why was the body of Jesus never produced? We know why it wasn't. It's because the body of Jesus was no longer in the tomb. It was just as the angel said, he is not here. He is risen. This is why it was the body of Jesus was never produced. The one piece of evidence that could refute Christianity was never presented because our Lord conquered death. He triumphed over the grave. He walked around on the earth for 40 days and then he ascended in his body to heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, and now he reigns as king and Lord forever. This is why it was never presented because he lives. This is why it was never presented because he lives. The resurrection of Jesus is an established matter. Okay? This is a weighty, established matter. It's established by eyewitness testimony. It's established by the scriptures. It is insane to doubt the resurrection. It is dangerous to doubt the resurrection. If you deny the resurrection, it will cost you your soul. You understand that? It's dangerous to doubt this truth. So this is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what we celebrate. Now I want to take it just a step further. And I want to walk into what are the implications of this? What does this mean for us? What does this mean for real life? And this is exactly what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, there is no Christianity without the resurrection. Okay, so in verses 12 and 13, we read this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. So as we start to finish up, I want to unpack just how foundational this doctrine is. It's connected to everything. Verse 14, he begins to walk into the implications like this. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The scriptures teach, the word of God teaches that if Christ wasn't raised, then our preaching is in vain. This means that it's empty, powerless useless. That's what our preaching is. This includes what I'm doing to you right now. If Christ has not been raised, what I'm doing is vain, empty, and powerless. It's a complete waste of time. Preaching is vain if Christ didn't raise from the dead. Without the resurrection, preaching is void of all truth, and therefore it's void of all power. But also, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, your faith is in vain. It is void, useless. Why? Because it's founded on a lie. It's groundless. And the word of God teaches this. This is verse 14. Verse 15 says this. If Christ wasn't raised, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. You see what he's doing? He's walking in he's saying, if this resurrection is, isn't true, here's what it affects. It's a foundational doctrine to Christianity. Verse 15 teaches that if Jesus had not been raised, then we as Christians lie about God. We lie. We tell lies about the creator God, the holy, holy, holy one. Can you imagine how sinful this is? That we become false witnesses against God, the God of all truth. 
This is true if Jesus didn't, wasn't raised from the dead. Verse 16 and 17 say this. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Can you imagine any news more terrible than this? That you are still in your sins. This means that you will die and face the holy, holy, holy judge at the judgment. And you will stand before him dead in your sins. And then the sentence will be passed down and you'll be pronounced guilty and you will be punished forever. You are dead in your sins if Christ did not raise. No resurrection means eternal suffering. Verse 18, then those who have, who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Do you understand this verse? If Jesus isn't, isn't raised from the dead, then Christians who have died right now, Christians who are dead right now, they're not in a better place. It's not, oh, oh praise God, they're in a better place. If Jesus didn't ra wasn't raised from the dead, they perish. They're currently in eternal suffering. There is no good news. Verse 19. If in Christ we hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Okay, think about this. The Word of God concedes this. If Jesus, it, it, it lays all the chips on the table with the resurrection. It all rides on this thing, okay? And if Jesus didn't, wasn't raised from the dead, then we of all people are most to be pitied. Why? Because we laid down our whole lives for a lie if Jesus wasn't raised. This is a pathetic thing to live your life for a lie. The Word of God concedes to this. It all hangs on the resurrection of Christ. But then we turn a corner here. And Paul's argument, it hits, it hits a capstone uh, in verses 20 and 21. And we find this, this statement. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So here we turn the corner. Christ has been raised. Okay, Christ has been raised. Christian, we celebrate this triumphant victory of Jesus over death. And we share in this victory of Christ ourselves because we are in him. What does this mean for the Christian that Christ has been raised? It means the opposite of everything that we just looked at in verses 12 through 19. Think about this. If Christ has been raised, it means the opposite of everything we just said, which means this, our preaching is not in vain. It's not a waste of time. It's not useless. We preach a living message. The gospel we announce has the power of God to bring salvation. Preaching is not in vain if Christ has been raised. Our faith is not in vain if Christ has been raised. We trust the one who can never lie. We trust the scriptures who can never be broken. Our faith is grounded in the proof of the resurrection of Jesus himself. Our faith is not in vain. We don't misrepresent God if Jesus has been raised. We are his ambassadors and we announce his truth to this world. And as a Christian, we are not to be pitied. We are to be envied. We get to walk with Christ in this life and go be with him forever. No pity for a Christian, only envy. We are in Christ Jesus forever into eternity. So I want to remind you of one more incredible mercy this morning. This is what we need to celebrate as we walk these things into our life. Incredible mercy is this. Because Jesus has been resurrected and raised, Christian, you are no longer dead in your sins. Dead in your sins, no longer. Jesus has saved us. It has happened. He has accomplished the work. Our sins have been paid in full. The resurrection announces God's provision to our greatest problem. The greatest problem that we could ever imagine is to stand guilty before this holy, holy, holy one. And God provided a way. He provided salvation. And Romans 4, 25 says this, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Think about this. God was satisfied with the death of his son. Jesus died for our sins. It satisfied God. So God publicly demonstrated his satisfaction by raising him from the dead. He was raised for our justification. 
His resurrection proves that the price has been paid and the, and the payment has been accepted by God the Father. We are not dead in our sins. We have been saved. We are free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin because Christ came out of the tomb. We are no longer dead in our sins. What do we say to these things? Praise God. This is what we say. Praise God. Praise the living Christ who reigns as Lord forever, that he has conquered our sin. He has conquered the grave. All right. I want everyone's closest attention as we go into this final point. Let's read verse 22 together as we close. I know you've been paying attention already. I just want you to dial in a little bit closer for just a second. Verse 22 says this. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay? We should all prepare to die. Everybody in this room should prepare to die. It's foolish to not prepare to die. So everybody should prepare to die. We have no hope to avoid earthly death. Okay? Even Christians, we have no hope to avoid. We're, we're going to face death, okay? It will happen. Earthly death will happen. Apart from a very special circumstance in the Word of God, it's, it's going down. It's going to happen. So we need to prepare to die. This verse answers the question, what happens after I die? What happens after we die? Out of love, we should all be preparing one another to die. And this verse shows us that every person, so I'm going to do that for you right now. And this verse shows us that every person that has ever existed will either die in Adam or live forever in Christ. You see that in verse 22. You will either die forever in Adam or live forever in Christ. Eternal life or eternal punishment. These are the two options in the entire word of God that, that are laid before every single human being. Die forever in Adam, live forever in Christ. So I want to ask you a very simple question. Which will it be for you? Eternal life or eternal punishment? Are you hooked to Adam or are you hooked to Christ Jesus? Now it would be very presumptuous for me to assume that every single person in this room was, was ready, had prepared themselves and was ready to meet the Lord. Very presumptuous thing. So I'm not going to do that. I want to warn you that the same Christ who died for our sins and was raised on the third day is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And the Word of God teaches that He's coming to judge the earth. Listen to Acts 17, verse 31. It says this, He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Did you catch that? The resurrection proves to you that you will stand before this living Christ at the end of your life. You will stand before him. He is your crea creator and he came to earth to save you, to die for your sins, to pay your redemption. And he was raised on the third day as Lord. And I plead with you this morning, if there's anybody here that needs to hear this message, that you would repent of your sins and put all of your trust in the Lord Jesus. The only safe place for you in eternity is Jesus Christ and Him alone. That's the only safe place for you. I want to address, just real quick, I want to address nominal cultural Christianity for just a second. Okay, The resurrection of Jesus Christ should be the death, the death state of cultural Christianity. We do not serve a myth or a fairy tale. We serve a risen, triumphant King. Okay? And here's what I mean. Jesus did not come out of the tomb to be an accessory to anyone's life. Never. Listen to Romans chapter 14, verse 9. Why did he come out of the tomb? Romans 14, verse 9 tells us. To this end, Christ died and lived again. Why did he die and live again? To this end. Romans 14, verse 9. To this end, Christ died and lived again. That he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. He came out of the tomb to reign over your life, not to be an accessory to your life that you attach on every once in a while and detach for the rest, rest of your life. This is silliness. The resurrection of Jesus should drive a death stake in cultural nominal Christianity. He was raised to be Lord. 
These are the terms that he accepts and no other. Christ was raised to be Lord. He's the king. He rose to be Lord. Repent. If this is true for anybody here, I would encourage you to repent from making Jesus the king and accessory and that you would put all your trust in Jesus Christ, the risen king. Okay? He's alive and he reigns. So I want to ask you, have you prepared to die? Have you prepared to die? This is everybody in here. Listen to Jesus Christ in John eleven twenty five and 26. This is the words of the Savior. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is what he says at the end of that verse. Do you believe this? Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe the words of Jesus Christ? Now, I know that most of you here, vast majority of you here, have prepared yourself to die by putting your trust in Jesus. I know that. Okay? Let me encourage you for a second. As a pastor of this church, part of my job is to shepherd you to die well as a Christian. Here's what I mean by that. Christ should be magnified in our bodies, whether by life or whether by death. And even our deaths can glorify God. So I want to I shepherd you in that direction. How in the world can our deaths glorify God? And I would submit to you by our not being terrified of judgment and our longing to be with our King. Are you experiencing this? Have you been delivered from the fear of death and future wrath? Do you long to go be with your King Jesus forever? We don't have to be terrified if our faith is in Christ who's paid for our sins and rose triumphantly from the dead. We will share in this glorious resurrection with him. Have you felt the effect of the resurrection in your soul? Has it affected your day today that Jesus Christ has raised, that he's alive, that he reigns? Do you feel the effect of this in your soul? And we pray that the Holy Spirit would cause us to feel it more and more and that we would experience this deliverance that he's purchased for us. We can receive great comfort in Christ. This is for every believer in this room. And I know that we have a really young church, but some of you are going to get really old. Okay? And because of what Jesus has done, because of what he's done, your dying thought on your deathbed, 85, 90 years old, your dying thought, you can have great comfort in this living, resurrected Lord with this thought. The next voice that I hear will be my Savior's voice. The next face that I see, I will see His face. I'm going to be with my Lord forever. This is, this is what He has purchased for us. He is our living King. And because He lives, we live also. This is the resurrection of Jesus. So as we close, listen to the words of Christ and let's celebrate the promise of Jesus. Back to John 11. This is verse 25 and 26. Celebrate this promise. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? those words we close and let's